Well, we're in a series together revisiting the sermons of John Wesley. And uh, today's message is from a sermon that Wesley preached on May 7th, 1775, entitled On the Trinity. And as I prepared to share Wesley's reflections on the doctrine of the Trinity today, I was reminded of a recent experience at my last ministry assignment. And I do see a few families from Christ Community Church who are here today. So welcome. It's good to see you. You were here. I think all of you were here on this Sunday that I'm about to talk about. But when I was pastoring there, in the middle of a sermon in which I mentioned the Trinity, a visitor to the congregation stood up, interrupted the message, and reprimanded me publicly. He was of the opinion that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were three distinct beings, three different gods. Their oneness for him was a way of speaking of their agreement with one another, but not of their being together one God. In response, I led the congregation to the hymnal and had them read together the Nicene Creed, just as we did this morning. So for me, at that time, it was an open and shut case. Either one confesses the Trinity or one is not Christian. And the man was quite upset. He ended up leaving the service before I had finished explaining the Orthodox Christian view. And it's one of those moments that has stayed with me. It's not the only time a service has been interrupted, but it's the only time I was called a heretic. And I had a, um, a pastor friend from Rochester write me after the service, and apparently he had heard about it, so he watched it. And he said, it's so strange, because that's the only thing you're not a heretic about. <laughs> <laughs> but as I prepared this week to learn from John Wesley... I was anxious to hear what he had to say about the Trinity, because it is a difficult doctrine and one that has caused many Christians a lot of consternation over the years. I have a Jewish friend who tells me the primary obstacle to Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus is the doctrine of the Trinity. So interesting. I've had to do some editing of Wesley's teaching throughout the message just to keep his main point clear. Several of the illustrations that he used, though they were perfectly suitable for 1775 England, they're quite dated today. Having lived before Albert Einstein and his theory of general relativity, for instance, Wesley's understanding of gravity and the motion of planets was limited to that of his time. And with that said, I did update his illustrations, but I think the points he was attempting to make remain important. Also, the main passage that Wesley was discussing is 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. And you heard our liturgists read that from the New International Version today. And that verse occurs in a greatly abbreviated form in modern translations of the Bible. And the, the verse was debated heavily in Wesley's day as well. Wesley seems to have believed that the longer version of 1 John 5, 7 was authentic whereas most scholars today don't believe that it was. And so you'll be hard-pressed to find any translation today that includes the verse, unless you read the King James. So in, in starting Wesley's sermon today, I'm going to read this passage, not the whole one that Dave read for us, but a portion of it from the King James, so you can hear the verse that Wesley was talking about. So here is the passage from the King James Version. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, 
that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood. And you should know better what water means, right? The waters are the chaos, right? He comes into a world surrounded by waters, and he lays down his life. That's the blood. So these are, this is what he's talking about there. He came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only. He doesn't simply come into the chaos, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. And here's the verse most translations today have removed from the Bible. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. So that's the passage that he is reflecting on, 1 John 5, 7. Whatever people may assume, opinion is not religion. Religion is not simply a way of speaking of a set of right opinions, nor is religion mentally agreeing with one or even 10,000 truths. Religion and opinion are worlds apart. Even a right opinion is as far from religion as the East is from the West. People can hold correct opinions about a great many things and still at the same time be irreligious. And, on the other hand, people may be truly religious while at the same time holding many wrong opinions. Now, the next paragraph is Wesley's words, but I will speak them. Can anyone possibly doubt this while Roman Catholicism remains in the world? For who can deny not only that throughout history many of this tradition have been truly religious, such as Thomas Akempis, Gregory Lopez, and the Marquis Jean-Baptiste de Renti, but also that many even today are real inward Christians. And yet, what a heap of erroneous opinions do they hold delivered by tradition from their fathers? Even more, again, this is Wesley, who can doubt this while there are Calvinists in the world? That is, those who believe in absolute predestination. Will anyone dare argue that none of these people are truly religious? Not only were many of them in the last century burning and shining lights, but many of them are still today real Christians, loving God and all humankind. And yet, what are all the absurd opinions of the Roman Catholic Church compared to that one of the Calvinists that the God of love, the wise, just, merciful Father of the spirits of all flesh, has from all eternity fixed an absolute, unchangeable, irresistible decree that part of humankind will be saved and they have no say whatsoever in their salvation, and that part of humankind will be condemned, and they have no say whatsoever in their damnation. In light of this, we cannot but conclude that there are 10,000 mistakes that can coexist with true religion. Therefore, any real and considerate person will allow for differing opinions. But there are some truths that are more important than others. It seems that there are some which are of deep importance. I don't call them myself, says Wesley, fundamental truths, because that's an ambiguous word, and consequently there have been many heated disputes about the number of fundamentals. 
With that said, there are some truths which we must be concerned with knowing because of their close connection with vital religion. In other words, there are some truths that are so central to the ways in which we worship God that to change them would be to change how the scriptures require us to worship. And certainly we might rank the words of 1 John 5, 7 among these. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now I do not mean to say that we must believe this tradition or that that tradition's interpretation of these words. In my opinion, a wise person would not attempt to explain them at all. One of the best tracts which that great man, Dean Jonathan Swift, ever wrote was his Sermon Upon the Trinity. And in that sermon, Swift has demonstrated that all who have tried to explain the Trinity at all have utterly lost their way and done more theological harm than good. In the words of Jonathan Swift himself, this is from a sermon that he printed in 1744, He writes, Since the world abounds with troublesome books, particularly written against the doctrine of the Trinity, it's important to inform you that the authors of these books were mistaken from the beginning. Their desire was to demonstrate how impossible it is that three can be one and one can be three. However, the scripture says no such thing, at at least not in the way they've taken it. The scriptures only say that there is some kind of unity and distinction in the divine nature, which humankind cannot possibly comprehend. Therefore, the whole doctrine is short and plain and should not be controversial. God has simply revealed the fact, but concealed the manner. And therefore, many theologians who thought it best to refute those wicked books have been mistaken too, by answering fools according to their folly and trying to explain a mystery, which God intended to keep secret from us. Therefore, I would encourage all people to avoid reading those wicked books. So this is good advice, right? You don't have to read. Amen? I would encourage all people to avoid reading those wicked books written against the doctrine of the Trinity. And I would also encourage them to omit the responses to those books as unnecessary as well. Such folks have only, as Job has said, darkened the divine plan by words without knowledge. It was in an evil hour that these expositors began their fruitless work. Wesley says, I insist upon no explanation of the Trinity at all, not even the best one I ever saw, that which is given to us in the creed commonly ascribed to Athanasius. The Athanasian creed begins with these words, Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. And then it continues. Wesley says, I would not say that those who cannot agree with the Athanasian Creed will without doubt perish everlastingly. But because of this statement and another later in the Creed, I for some time did require that all believers subscribe to that Creed. But then I realized, first, that these sentences relate only to willful unbelievers, that is, to those who've had opportunity to read this creed and to understand it and then have decided to reject it. And second, that they relate only to the substance of the doctrine of the Trinity and not to the philosophical illustrations of it. I do not insist that anyone use the word Trinity or person when speaking of God. I use these terms myself without any difficulty because I know of no better words. 
But if anyone has a problem with them, I wouldn't force him or her to use them. I would not, for instance, burn a man alive for saying, though I believe the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, yet I struggle with using the words Trinity in person because I do not find those terms in the Bible. Wesley says he would not burn such a man at the stake. But these are the words which the merciful John Calvin cited as having been written by Servetus. And John Calvin did lead the city of Geneva to burn Servetus at the stake for saying these things. Wesley continues, I would insist only on the words just as they appear in the scriptural text without explanation. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one just as they appear in the scriptural text. But here arises a question. Is that text genuine? Were the words, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, originally written by the Apostle John, or were they inserted later by others? Many have questioned the authenticity of the passage. Whatever the outcome of the debate over the authenticity of 1 John 5-7 may be, several other passages describe God as both three and one. The insistence on the oneness of God is from the beginning, as can be seen in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet Jesus revealed distinctions within the oneness of God. For instance, in John 10, 27 to 30, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Furthermore, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, this is a passage that Bob led us through when he preached a few weeks ago. Jesus taught his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And the following exchange between the Apostle Philip and Jesus in John chapter 14 is particularly telling. Listen to this with these lenses. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, he says to Jesus, and it's enough for us. Hear Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you for so long a time, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? That's quite something. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I don't speak on my own, but the Father, as he remains in me, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. We could go on, but these should suffice for our present purposes. Another objection has been made. Whatever one makes of the text of 1 John 5-7, we cannot believe what we cannot understand. Therefore, when you require us to believe mysteries, we ask to be excused. Here's a twofold mistake. First, you are not required to believe any mystery with respect to the Trinity, despite your belief to the contrary. And second, every person already believes many things that she or he cannot understand. To begin with the latter, each of us already believes many things that we cannot fully comprehend. Each of us believes that there is a sun over our heads. 
And we believe that the Earth revolves around the Sun, along with the other planets, by a force called gravity. But what precisely is gravity? When NASA was asked that question in its Star Child Question of the Month in February of 2001, this was the NASA response. We don't really know. We can define what it is as a field of influence because we know how it operates in the universe, and some scientists think that it's made up of particles called gravitons which travel at the speed of light. However, if we are to be honest, we do not know what gravity is in any fundamental way. We only know how it behaves. But even though we cannot fully comprehend what gravity is, none of us believe we will float away when we walk out of the church doors. We believe there's such a thing as light, whether it emanates from the sun or any other light source, but we cannot fully comprehend either its nature or the manner by which it flows. Michael Scherbner, in his 2007, and this is a, a, an internet site, I don't know if it's live science or live science. Do you know? I don't know. I searched, you wouldn't believe, I did more research on that than anything in the sermon, and I don't know how to pronounce this website, so I'm going to say live science because it sounds better to me. But in an article he wrote entitled The Enduring Mystery of Light, he wrote this, It goes through walls, but slows to a standstill in ultra-cold gases. It carries electronic information for radios and TVs, but destroys genetic information in cells. It bends around buildings and squeezes through pinholes, but ricochets off tiny electrons. It's light, and although we know it primarily as the opposite of darkness, most of light is not visible to our eyes. From low-energy radio waves to high-energy gamma rays, light zips around us, bounces off of us, and sometimes goes right through us. Because it is so many things, defining light is a bit of a philosophical quandary. It doesn't help that light continues to surprise us with novel materials that alter light's speed and trajectory in unexpected ways. To return to Wesley, explain this, and I'll explain the 3-1 God to you. Many people believe we have souls, that we have an immaterial soul connected somehow with this physical body, but can any of us fully comprehend how such a thing would work? What are the ties that unite the heavenly flame with the earthly clod? None of us understands this. Those who believe this assume it to be true, but how it is, no one can explain. In summary, those who will not believe anything that they cannot fully comprehend must not believe in gravity, nor that there is light shining around them, nor that they have a soul. Secondly, as strange as it may seem, in requiring us to believe that there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, we are not required to believe any mystery. That great and good man, Dr. Peter Brown, the former Bishop of Cork, has demonstrated that the Bible does not require us to believe any mystery at all. The Bible only requires us to believe facts, not the manner by which they have come to be facts. The mystery, after all, does not lie in the fact, but entirely in the manner. For instance, God said, let there be light. And there was light. I believe this. I believe the plain fact of it. There's no mystery in this at all. The mystery lies in the manner of it. How did it happen? How does creation work? I don't know anything about that. I believe nothing about it. This is more an object of my faith than it is of my understanding. To apply this to the scripture passage before us, 
For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. I believe this fact also, namely that God is three and one. But I don't understand how this is so, and therefore I don't believe in the manner of it, the how of it. It's in the manner of it that the mystery lies, but I'm not concerned with how this is so. That's not the object of my faith. I believe only what God has revealed, and no more. God has not revealed how this is so, therefore I believe nothing about the manner of it. But still, it would be absurd of me to deny the fact that God is three in one simply because I do not understand how it works. In other words, it would be absurd to reject what God has revealed simply because I do not fully comprehend what God has not revealed. And this is a significant point for us to grasp. There are many things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the human heart. Some of these, to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. Revealed. That is, he unveiled them or he uncovered them. God revealed those parts. He requires us to believe. But parts of them, God has not revealed. These things we need not and cannot believe. These unrevealed things are far above us. They're out of our sight. Now, where is the wisdom of rejecting what is revealed? Because we do not understand what is not revealed. Is it wise to deny the fact of what God has unveiled? Because we cannot understand the manner of it, which remains hidden, especially when we consider that what God has revealed to us with respect to his being three and one is a truth of the highest possible importance? This confession lies at the heart of Christianity, And it lies at the root of all vital religion. That is, it's at the heart of how the scriptures instruct us to worship God. Unless these three are one, how can all honor the Son just as they honor the Father, as Jesus requires in John chapter 5, verse 23? Socinus, an early father, wrote in a letter to his friend these words, I know not what to do with my untoward followers. They will not worship Jesus Christ. I tell them that it's written, and let all the angels of God worship him. And they answer, however that be, if he is not God, we dare not worship him. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What I'm trying to explain is this. The knowledge of the three one God is interwoven into all true Christian faith, and therefore with all vital religion, that is with all Christian worship, without the doctrine we would not be permitted to worship Jesus. I'm not arguing that every real Christian must confess with the Marquis de Renti, I bear with me continually an experience of the truth of and an abundance of the presence of the ever-blessed Trinity. I presume that this is not the experience of infants in Christ, but maybe only the fathers. But I do not know how anyone can be a Christian believer until he has, as the Apostle John has written, the testimony in himself, until the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That is, until the Holy Spirit testifies that God the Father has accepted him through the merits of God the Son, and having this testimony, he honors the Son and the blessed Spirit, even as he honors the Father. Now, maybe not every Christian would testify to that. Early in the Christian walk, maybe one in 20 would not confess it. But if you were to ask any true believer a few questions, you would find quite quickly 
that this is implied in all that he or she believes. Therefore, I do not see how it's possible for any to have vital religion and deny that these three are one. My hope for them is not that they will be saved, but that before they pass into eternity, God will bring them the knowledge of the truth. Amen.